The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, as John said, we come to Peter's final words, final section. He's exhorted his people through this second letter to um, bring forth spiritual fruit in verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Those things. He's encouraged the church. He encouraged the church to be mindful of the prophetic word that they've heard from uh, from the apostles. For we did not uh, follow cleverly devised myths, Peter talking about the apostles, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were witnesses of his majesty. He told them in that second chapter, be aware of those uh, of the false prophets. But false prophets... Also rose among you, just as there will be false teachers, I mean among the people, and just as there will be false teachers among you, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Told them not to be discouraged by the scoffers who, who come their way. Chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus isn't coming back. It's been too long. You've been waiting around too long. He's not coming back. And then to live holy lives in light of the day of the Lord. We saw last week, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. Some of you might remember that was the text last week. Some of you maybe not. But at the end of all of this, we notice that there's great love for the church. Great love for these people that he's writing to. He, he uses that word beloved four times in verse one in this chapter. Um, verse one, uh, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Uh, verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And then two times in the text, John, I just read for you. It's a term of endearment for sure. It's a term expressing how he feels about the church of Jesus Christ. And with that love in his heart, he writes these final words. I typically don't get emotional uh, when studying Scripture, but yesterday when I was thinking of the fact that these are the last, just reading through them again, these are the last words uh, Peter wrote before he hung upside down on a cross. I got I got a bit emotional. Fortunately, you weren't there to see it. 
He knows he's going to die soon. Chapter 1, verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He knows it's coming. So quite possibly, he's thinking in this text today, these last five verses. What are my final... What are, what are the last words I want to put on paper for the church of Jesus Christ? I relate some. I'm not going to die on a cross, most likely. But as you get older in ministry, you do think about finishing well, more than you think when you're 20. And making sure every message is prepared in a way that if it's your last, you're okay with it. I always thought it would be nice just to die in the pulpit while I was preaching. That would probably think freak you out, but I think it would be really cool. But Just drag me off, somebody else come up and finish up. But that's what he's thinking. And do we, as we want to finish well... Is it our sincere desire to be of benefit to the church? So what are the common concerns? What are the concerns that he, as he writes these um, last verses, what, what, what's really on his heart that he, as he writes to his dearly beloved? Well, he gives four commands for us. There they're called imperatives. We could call them exhortations or commands or whatever in these final verses. Uh, the first one in verse 14, be diligent. Uh, meaning make every effort. The ESV's translation of some of these imperatives are not best for an outline, but we'll do the best we can. And make every effort. Strive, he That's what be diligent means. Verse 15, count is translated. Some some of your Bibles may say bear in mind. Some of your Bibles may say bring to mind. Some may say remember or regard. Count the patience of our Lord. Regard the patience. Bear in mind the patience of the Lord. The third one is take care. We see in verse 17, beware, be on your guard, some of your translations may say. And then the fourth one is simply grow. That word grow is oxano. We, um, uh, your elders are familiar with that. We used a, a consulting group called oxano um, to walk us through some things a couple of years ago and out of that process came our mission statement and other things as well so he says in conclusion do these things these four things be diligent therefore beloved since you're waiting for these be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at Peace. We, we see that same thought actually a few verses earlier in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? So he says, therefore, since you know these things, since you are waiting for these things, do this. Be diligent about holiness in your life. What are these things he's talking about? You go back one verse, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, since you're waiting for these, since you're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, be diligent to be found by him spotless. Since you believe in this, work at it. Since you believe in these things, make it your major concern. That's a, that's a favorite term. I already read one of them, chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason. Make every effort. It's the same Greek word there. In verse 15, he says, uh, make every effort. I, I will make every effort. He says it about himself. Go back to verse 10 of chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. It's a favorite word of Peter, and it reflects in many ways his own, uh, his own zeal. Think about Peter, his own zeal, his own enthusiasm. Um, you know, there, you, you remember, there's nothing half-hearted about Peter, right? Even in old days, it's probably true as well. Peter's like a bull in a china shop. Hey, let me walk on water with you, Jesus. Oops. All right, all out. Even though everybody else will run for you, I'll stay by your side. I don't know who he is. It's that same zeal and enthusiasm that actually got him in trouble a lot. Paul uses the same term in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. And he, he, Paul even gives us the same thought that Peter's talking about, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If our hearts are really set on the glory of a new heaven and a new earth, we're bound to live differently, don't you think? We'll endeavor to walk godly in, in regard to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Walk godly lives in peace with them. Not only in, in regard to our brothers and sisters, but in regard to God as well. Without spot or blemish. Those are the same words, by the way, used of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter used in First Peter. Chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul uses the same thought in Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. God's goal is that we, that we escape the corruption of this dark world. 
We have a responsibility. Be diligent. He said we have a responsibility to holy living. And we particularly have a responsibility to holy living with regard to our spots and our blemishes. Not those little things. I got a blemish on my hand. You looked in the mirror this morning. Well, I can cover that up with makeup, right? No. This is a heart matter Peter's talking about. Spotless. Without defect or defilement. If you look it up, that's what we'll see. It's related to that spotless sacrifice, he says in in 1 Peter chapter 1, without blemish or spot, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. You see, back in 2.13, we see that the false teachers were not spotless. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their own deceptions while they feast with you. They are blots and blemishes. Those are the false teachers. And he ends that sentence, and at peace. Cultivate peace. It's not the absence of of turmoil in your life. It's not the absence of trials in your life. It's not, not the absence of all the circumstances that are going on in your life, what it is, it, it's a concentrated effort. It's a, it, it's a diligent to walk with God in such a way that there'll be peace in your life no matter what the circumstances are. Remove sin in such a way that, 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 that anxiety and, and panic will flee from your life. Being free from those moral stains... Being free from guilt creates a peace. You've experienced that, haven't you? Being free from the sin in your life, the guilt in your life, creates a peace that only God can give. And that's what Peter means. And at peace. Uh, the uh, writer of Hebrews connects peace and holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen: Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so diligence speaks of hard, honest, persevering effort. If Christ is worth anything, he's worth a life of diligent service on our part. We represent him in the world. We have a great work to do that he's called us to do, and we have little time to do it. Peter said in the first part of this chapter. He's also thinking about the condition in which Christ finds us when he returns. Without spot or blemish. That when he returns, he finds holy people living for him, faithfully for him. John has this thought in 1 John 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What's he going to find with you when he comes? You're going to hide your face and shrink with shame when he arrives? You will find something spotless and without blemish.
So that's the question for us. Am I making every effort to make progress in my walk with God? Am I being most diligent in my life, in my Christian life? And Sunday morning at Grace on the Ashley, that doesn't count. Going to Connect Group on Sunday morning, that doesn't count. That's not being most diligent. It takes more. Think about it this way. Half of 2017 is over. What progress have you made in your walk with God since the end of 2016? Where are you? Only you can answer that. God knows. Second exhortation is count. Verse 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter should talk, right? which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Count. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Bear in mind the patience of our Lord as Remember the patience of our... Focus on these things. That's a favorite of Peter, too. I'm here to remind you, he says. Just in this, um, just in this uh, letter in Second Peter, verse thirteen, chapter one. I think you're right. As long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And the very beginning of this chapter, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Let me remind you of these things. The patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, that relates back to verse 9 we looked at uh, last week. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient towards you. He's patient toward you. And we might ask that question just reading in verse 9. Stopping, well, what does he mean by that? Well, he tells us what he means by that in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God's tarrying, God's long-suffering, God's patient leads people to repentance and salvation. It's not an indication, as the scoffers were saying, that he's never going to come again. He's waiting for your salvation. He's waiting for you to repent. That's the purpose of his delay. Count, regard, bear in mind, his long-suffering is a part of his saving plan. And the door will remain open until the last possible moment. For those of you here today who don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the door will remain open till the last possible moment. But when it's closed, it's closed. And then Peter said, I'm not alone in this teaching. Paul taught this. Paul taught this throughout his letters. 
There are a couple of issues here. I'd just address those of you who don't know the Lord. For those of you who are lost, God is patient. He's waiting for you to repent and believe. For those of you that are believers, God is patient regarding your witness. Because those people who won't believe unless you tell them. It's patient for all of us. As we saw last week, you play a role in hastening the day of the Lord in your witness. People often like to talk about these things. What, what books, what letters are, is Peter talking about when he talks about Paul's letters? They read Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. I suspect if he read any of them, he just is making a general observation and not thinking about anything specific. The, the general theme of holy living while waiting for Christ's return. You, you read that throughout Paul's letters. And note too, he says, our beloved brother. Some have suggested over the years that uh, Peter and Paul weren't on the same page. But this praise from Peter is even more wonderful than when you remind yourself of Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul saying, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Uh, There's a little dispute. Because he stood and condemned For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You can read the rest of that through verse 22, I think. 21 or 22. That entire statement. So there was some division, but still these two early church leaders had a deep appreciation for each other. A brotherly love. I suspect Peter had read all 13 of Paul's letters and probably even more than the 13 that we have in the New Testament. Certainly he's read some of them because he commented they're hard to understand or parts of them are hard to understand. Well, at this, by this point they were widely circulated. They both died in Rome near the same time. So this was a special relationship Peter and Paul had. By this point, there was no division. Charles Biggs said, It is not only possible, but probable that St. Peter received every one of St. Paul's epistles within a month or two of its publication. We cannot imagine that one apostle should have remained in ignorance of what other apostles were doing, and it's quite inconceivable that St. Peter should not have read Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Then Peter says, that last sentence of uh, verse 16, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. We'll address that uh, distortion issue Uh, in a few minutes. But I want to mention this thing regarding scriptures. You see that last phrase? 
as they do the other scriptures? You think to yourself, well, now, Peter, when Peter talks about scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's all they had. But even here early on, the writings of Paul, other what we call New Testament writings are being considered scripture. All they had in the Old Testament was the early church, where the apostles recognized what they were writing as the Word of God. Paul, probably the very first letter he wrote to a believing congregation, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as the Word of men, but as what, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. But then as time went on, we see it as the word of God. We see it as scripture as well. This is interesting here in First Timothy. Here's a perfect example. First Timothy 5. Let the rule elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. He says, the scripture says, that first phrase, you shall not muzzle an ox, from Deuteronomy 25. The second phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, from Luke 10. Paul's calling the scriptures already. So he says, count. Bear in mind the patience of the Lord that even Paul wrote about. His patience is for your salvation. Exhortation 3, take care. Uh, Erdman has a comment about these last two verses, about Peter's final words. Here's the quote. The purpose of Peter is intensely practical. He has written of the return of Christ not to arouse idle speculation or to occasion bitter disputes, but to make better men and women. Two facts he makes perfectly clear. Christ will come. The result will be a reign of righteousness. Thus, as he brings his epistle to a close, he gives two parting injunctions. One is to steadfastness, the other to spiritual growth. The first one, what Erdman calls steadfastness. Take care. Be steadfast. You, therefore, verse 17, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In an interesting way to say it. That take care. That's the mentality of a watchman. It's a moment-by-moment vigilance. Be on your guard. Be alert. It's stronger than what our English is take care. It doesn't it means that just because things are peaceful right now, they might not be in the next moment. So be on your guard. You think of that, you think of the Secret Service. Doesn't matter who the president is, they have a job to do. You think about their readiness, their alertness. Most of the time in their lives, things are fine. They just go about their job, make sure everybody is 
at their assignment. And, but any possible moment, disaster can strike. And they're on the alert. They're on their guard. Take care. Take care of you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. In other words, we who know the day of the Lord is coming, wait for it with patience. And we must persevere unless we, what? Lose our own stability. Take care to keep abiding in Jesus because those, those lawless, false teachers will come and invade and destroy. You're the watchman on the tower. Watch out for them. That strong foundation was laid by the apostles. Strong foundation was laid by the prophets. That, faith, that foundation is secure as it can possibly be. Based on the promise of God, the foundation of the apostles and prophets is, is secure. But your footing might not be. Your footing on that foundation might not be secure. You may lose your own stability. And that may be true for you. New believers particularly, who aren't grounded in the essentials of the faith, at least not grounded quickly in the essentials of the faith. Those are the believers who are most susceptible to the false teachers. You, you think about the young people who, who haven't grown up in the faith and they, they flock to the latest megachurch with a false teacher. Or you think of those people who, who, um, who haven't grown up with, with biblical teaching, strong biblical teaching, committed biblical teaching. Even older people have just gone their way and heard fluffy preaching all their lives. What are they going to do? The latest and greatest megachurch with the false teacher. I think I'll go there. I'll go there. Why will I go there? Because he teaches new and creative things. And he shows clips from movies on his video. He's entertaining. And let me connect that to something he said in the last sentence of verse 16. There are some things in them, talking about Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, my first thought when I read that, it's comforting for me to know that Peter found some of Paul's writings hard to understand. But we've learned this past year, and it's been exactly a year, in these two letters, First and Second Peter, and we've learned this past year that Peter also wrote some things that are difficult to understand. He relates that to those that are ignorant. And that would, that would be defined as those who had not re- received teaching that concerned all that God had revealed. Not the whole counsel. Those who hadn't had the whole counsel of God. Talk to them. Those are the ignorant, the unstable, 
those, those who aren't always consistent in their commitment to the Lord. Some of these people fall into just your average, average church member, your average professor of Christ. But they also fall, these, this is a false teachers come out of this group of people as well. Unstable would be those that are double-minded, those fence straddlers, one who changes and wavers with their view. You know, you know those people, right? They're gung-ho from Jesus today, and then tomorrow they're just struggling with doubt. They're so gung-ho with Jesus, they show up at every Bible study and, and every church service, and, and then, you know, two weeks later, you find out they're at home because they just fell by the wayside. That's the unstable. And it's a spiritual instability. It has nothing to do with their mentality. They misunderstood and in some cases deliberately misrepresented the meaning of Paul's writings, which just added to their guilt. That verb we see distort is used. Um, in our translation, it's twist, which the ignorant and unstable twist an interesting word. It means to twist or wrench, but it's also it's also the word that's used for the rack. The rack being an instrument of torture. You stretch somebody and you twist their body till they finally confess. It's a winch. So Peter is saying that these unstable Ignorant, false teachers, these scoffers and others take Paul's statements and twist them and torture them like victims on a rack to force them to say what they want them to say. Now, the fancy word for that is eisegesis, but they twist the words in such a way that they say what the speaker wants them to say. Nathaniel Williams says, In attempting to destroy the Bible, men destroy themselves. This relates to all that he spoke about in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. The false teachers and the scoffers take care that you aren't carried away by these people. Take care that you're not one of these ignorant and unstable people. We know for sure Paul's doctrine of grace. You know, we see from Romans 5 through verse 8 was, dis- was distorted. We see that in chapter 6. He says, since, since grace is so great, can we keep on sinning? By no means, Paul says. It was twisted. Paul's words were twisted. His words on Christians' freedom in Christ in Galatians was he was accused to give a license for sin. His words about the second coming of Christ in Second Thessalonians twisted to say that Jesus had already come the second time. The, the world is full of people seeking to erode God's truth. And truth can be taken away. 
eventually churches get shut down. Politicians questioning people question their Christianity and then determine if you believe that, you aren't fit to serve the United States of America. Happened this week, by the way. Truth can be taken away, but can be eroded over time. We see that in some denominations. We saw it in our denomination through until the late 70s and early 70s when there was a resurgence in biblical inerrancy. But you see it in other denominations. It's just eroded over time. And then it's just diluted by error. On and on and on. No law, truth is no longer pure. That truth is no longer effective. It's important that the church preserves the truth as it's been handed down to us. Don't take that responsibility lightly. We can't take that responsibility lightly. Sometimes you get tired of standing for the truth. Your words will be distorted. Paul's were distorted. Your character will be attacked. Paul had to constantly battle those false teachers and and those unprincipled men all the time. Paul would start a church and, and leave, and then he'd have to go back to the church to deal with the false teachers that had snuck in, crept into the body. Take care. Be on your guard. It's a military term, actually. Uh, Charles Swindoll picks up on that and constantly keep looking for the approaching enemy. He says, because they will sneak up on us through the dense fog of deception, wearing our uniforms, carrying our weapons, and speaking our language. We must be alert. And let me take a little side road here if I can. I can. I give myself permission. I mentioned the growing realization of the emergence of the New Testament becoming Scripture earlier. We see that when we start talking about standing on the truth because it's so vital and important to see that in the New Testament times. I'll give you a couple of examples. You remember the story in, in Acts 8 of... Um, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian dude. You remember? You remember that? Some of you remember that. That's okay if you don't know that story. Um, but the Ethiopians, Philip just shows up, and the Ethiopian is riding in a carriage, and and and, and he's reading scripture. He's just come from Jerusalem, and he's reading Isaiah 53, and. And Philip's asking what he's reading. He tells him, and, 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 he said, and the Ethiopian says, Who is Isaiah talking about? And in verse 35, we don't have it up on the screen, verse 35 of that story. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. 
He brings in that New Testament story that's going on and ties it to the Old Testament. Remember those two dejected men on the road to Emmaus? Lost all hope. Their hope is gone. They're down and out. They're heading back home. What we thought was our Messiah was crucified and buried. And then Jesus shows up on the road with them. They don't recognize him. Now they're dejected. They've lost all hope. Did he say, I'm Jesus? No, he preached to them. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, why do I bring that up? We must make the truth of the word of God a priority for us all. That's the part of point number one as well. Be diligent toward holiness. That's a part of holiness. Making the truth of the word a priority for you. The Old Testament and the New Testament. For your own progress. For your children's progress. For your children's children's progress. Make the entirety of the word of God your priority. Undistorted teaching reveals the mind of God. Undistorted teaching of Connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament reveals the will of God in your life. And you're to question it. You go to some church, you question what you're taught. It's your responsibility. You come here, you question my preaching. You question all teaching. That's your responsibility. Those false teachers distort the scriptures. And so you, here's how you question. Do they preach at all? Do they just preach the easy parts? Do they just preach the happy parts? What we do here, here at Grace means you can't pass on the hard parts. That gets challenging from time to time. When you've committed to preaching verse by verse through a passage of Scripture, you just got to take the next passage. Hard or not. I think I get more of the hard ones than Pastor Greg. We, but you remember this too. We preachers have to answer to God. I have to answer to God for what I preach and teach. Josh Dicker preached last Wednesday. He's got to answer to God for what he preached. Thinking about this, I was reminded of Hebrews thirteen, seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And there's the point. As those who will have to give an account. I have to give an account. And that leads us to exhortation four. Grow. Oxano. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The answer to the error is grow. 
that's sort of a theme of Peter's too in the beginning of this um, letter he says may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord in 1 Peter 2.2 he says like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation let your experience in Christ continue to mature May his gracious work in your life become increasingly apparent. Is it apparent? I asked about you halfway through 2017. Is that growth apparent? Learn to know him personally, continually, in an increasing way. You've got to figure that out. And how you figure that out is being diligent in figuring it out. How do you grow? We avoid falling from our own commitment by a continual growth in grace and knowledge. And those the last thought, those two things have to be in balance, grace and knowledge, right? We grow in the grace and knowledge. Those have to be in, in, in good balance. Because you know <clears throat> you know those people who are full of grace in their lives, they're just the sweetest people in the world and they they you know, you, you, you you misstep regarding them and, and they just forgive you quickly and they're just, just full of grace you know but they don't know why they're full of grace because they don't have any knowledge and then you know those people that all they have is knowledge their heads are so big you think they should fall down every single time they get up just all not they're the people that they want to talk to you but you know about let's talk about eschatology you know, they just their minds are full of all the stuff, but no great, no grace in their lives. They they're just gung ho talking about all their knowledge, and you see them come. I know you. You see them coming. You want to, you want to run, don't you? Those two things have to be in perfect balance. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're out of time. What should we be doing waiting for Jesus to come again? Build a bomb shelter. Right? Or as some people did one time when they were following some false prophet that had set a date for Jesus' return, they, they all put on white robes as if God couldn't have them available in heaven, you know. They, or do we stockpile food? Or what do we do? Peter's not interested in our activity throughout these letters. He's interested in our attitude. Align your thinking with the word of truth. Work diligently to be found in peace. You can only be found in peace as you deal with the sin in your life. Be above reproach and, and blameless in this incredibly corrupt society that we live in realize that the Lord's patience is patience with all of us so that you might enter a relationship with him or that you might have time to witness and be on your guard against false teachers scoffers who distort the truth even to their own destruction let us grow in grace Michael Green said about this, The Christian life 
it has been said is like right that quote's not on the screen so you have to listen the Christian life it has been said is like riding a bicycle unless you keep moving you fall off no true Christian thinks as the false teachers seem to have done that he has arrived Peter and Paul both urge others to press on as they themselves do the Christian life is a developing life or a consistent getting to know at even greater depth an inexhaustible Lord and Savior. And to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Sing a hymn in a moment about grace, God's grace. While we're singing that hymn, if you're here today, you have questions about the message. Maybe all this talk about Christ confusing to you. All this talk about the Scripture, the truth of God's Word is confusing to you. I encourage you to make your way to the back. We'll have some people back there while we sing and pray with you and talk with you. Father, we do thank you for your Word. Your great love for us. For the truth that we get to proclaim so that those you're being patient for might come to know you. And we make that truth a priority in our own lives. Thank you for your gift of grace. For calling us here to this place today. In the name of Jesus. Amen.